Hey, Sharon Steak High Alpha family. Um, in this episode, you're going to listen to Matt Harris give a sermon. Um, I did everything I could to salvage the audio, but it might be a little bit uh, grainy and clicky. I'm not sure what happened. Um, it's possible we recorded out of the wrong outlet. Um, and so it just sounds off. So my apologies. However, like I said, I tried to salvage the audio. And so I went ahead and am publishing this episode. Um, if it's too much for you, I totally understand. Um, but hope you enjoy. So speaking is not necessarily my forte, and I always get a little nervous before I do this kind of stuff. But hey, we'll see how it goes. Right? Let us uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for. Uh, Wonderful night, Lord. We thank you that we could be here to learn of your word, Lord, to dive deeper into knowing you, Lord. To know our Savior, to know and to love you more, Lord, through the knowledge of you. So I pray that, uh, Lord, you would help me to faithfully uh, dispense that knowledge, Lord, um, to give what you've given me, Lord, to, to those around me, Lord. And I pray these things in your name. I pray for guidance and uh, pray for your spirit to just uh, uh, rest heavily on us in, in your precious name. Amen. All right, so I had a heck of a time figuring out a title for this. I went through, I was going to say, deliverance. Um, I was going to do uh, this journey. I didn't know. I'm bad at titles. But as I read through uh, my notes more and more, I thought, well, it actually would make more sense to title it Our First Love. And that um, specific verse comes from Revelation 2.4. We'll just go there really quick, just so we kind of get an idea where, where that comes from. He's talking about the church in Ephesus, and he commends them on, um, on a lot of good things they do and a lot of good things they've done. But he, 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 uh, he has one thing against them. And that's in, in, in chapter sorry, chapter 2, verse 4. And it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And we're going to dive into what that kind of means um, tonight. In short, it means they've left the salvation of Christ. They've left in their thoughts, in their minds, they've made their faith mundane, robotic, meaningless, because they've left what it meant what their salvation meant and where it came from, and that is from Christ. And so we're going to kind of set a scene here. We're going to go back to Israel coming out of Egypt. And this is actually two years after Israel's delivered from Egypt. In the wilderness of Sinai, God is giving the laws and ordinance to his people who numbered nearly 2 million, um, probably 2.5 million. Uh, and where they kind of get to that number is that uh, the uh, God had... Moses take a census of all the fighting men of Israel, uh, and it came up to about 605,000 fighting men. That means men of 20 years old and older. And so, with women and children and and other men that were probably older that couldn't fight, that would be around 2.5 million. But anyway, um, in order to, pre to prepare them for the service in the kingdom through their and their journey through the wilderness and entry into the promised land of Canaan, he was giving them these ordinances. And one of the final ordinances he gave to his children before they left and departed from Sinai 
was to keep the Passover. And this is the first passage we'll have up. It's Numbers uh, 9, 1 and 5. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appropriate, uh, at its appointed time. And on the 14th day of the month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. And so Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai. According to all the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. So we've all kind of heard the story of Israel's delivery from Egypt, but I'm kind of going to recap it a little bit. And so what was going on is um, Israel had been in captivity in Egypt for nearly 400 years by now. And their cry came before their God. And God heard their cry, and God set out to do the thing that he had always intended to do, and that is deliver them from Egypt. And he did this through many mighty great works. Um, plagues and uh, cataclysmic events, fire from heaven, hailstones, uh, plagues of locusts, blood into, or water into blood. Um, just many very huge miraculous events. All to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh's heart was very hardened. And at points, even the children of Israel said, you know, Pharaoh or Moses, go away. You're making life harder for us. You have, you've, you've caused Pharaoh to double our workload. You've caused Pharaoh to make us go get our own materials for what we're building for him. And so the children of Israel, even at points, were like, get out of here. We, you're making life worse. We're good the way we are. We like it. We like it here, essentially. And they even said that a couple times in the wilderness. They said, we could have died in Egypt where we had the good things to eat. So they complained against Pharaoh and God again there. So anyway, there was one final plague that was the straw that broke the camel's back, not just for Pharaoh, but for the people of Egypt. They were, this was a very devastating plague, and it was a plague of, of the angel of death. So God sends the angel of death into Egypt, and, and it is sent to kill all the firstborn of man, and all the firstborn of the animals, and as you can imagine, this would be quite horrible. I mean, I can't imagine going through this. But God gave his people a commandment to cover their doorposts with the blood of a, of a sacrificial lamb. So they take a hyssop branch, which was a mint making kind of plant, and they spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And that night, the, the, the angel of death passed over and did kill all the first one that did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And of course we all know that the blood of the lamb is in reference to Christ and foreshadowing of Christ and foreshadowing of God's deliverance for the world eventually. But anyway, it so happened that one of the firstborn was Pharaoh's son. And this, like I say, caused Pharaoh and the people of Egypt not just to let them go, not just to let the Israelites out, but to drive them out. They said, leave us. You are destroying us. And they wanted them to leave. So not even necessarily the will of the Israelites, per se, got them out of there. It was God's will that pushed them out of that land. God brought them out mightily. God provided for them. God was their strength and their power and their deliverer. And that is important. And so this is why God wants 
his people to remember his Passover. Because they had a tendency to forget a lot in the wilderness. They're coming into the land of Canaan. Spies were sent into the land of Canaan. I can't remember how many. Most of them came back and said, well, here's what we got. We got giants too big for us. Cities too fortified. Land too treacherous. We can't do this. Twelve? Oh, thank you. Oh, you said that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that makes sense. So anyway, um, two of them, however, Caleb and Joshua, said we can do this. But who did the Israelites listen to? They listened to the other ten. And so they didn't go in. And it's not because... It is be, I should say it's not, not that it's not because, but it is because they have forgotten what God had done for them in Israel and what he told them he would do for them in Canaan. I am giving this land to you. Giving it. It's conquered. It's done. The things I've planned to do are already done. You just have to go in and trust what I said. Joshua and Caleb did, and eventually they did enter in. So this is why it's important that Israel remembers this. That they remembered their plate in Egypt, and what they were delivered from so that, they loved God, so that they would love their God and serve him with a contrite and thankful heart. <clears throat> Just as it was important for Israel to remember being loosed from their bondage in Israel, so it is important and even necessary for us to reflect deeply on our freedom from sin. Psalms 103, and I think this is the only other verse that I actually, or passage that I have put up. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, and who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So this is a passage that helps us and reminds us oops, of the benefits that God has for us. And I'm going to kind of rapid fire through some of the first ones because there's one I want to get to one I felt pressed to focus on a little more than the rest. So the first one, he forgives our sins. He forgives our, our sins, which are contempt toward him in every act of disobedience. So when we sin, it's showing contempt towards God and towards his law. And the law of God is simply a picture of who God is. And so when we have contempt toward the law and when we disobey the law, then, then we're showing contempt toward the person of God. Um, and our sins are against God and God alone. And, and David says this in Psalm 51. He says, uh, ah, shoot, I'll have to go to it really quick because I can't. Sorry, I, I like this verse and I like this passage, so I'm going to go to it. I had it in my head and then it just um, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. So even sin against other people, though it is sin against them, and we need their forgiveness as well, we mostly need God, God's forgiveness, because sin against other people is sin against the creation of God. Anyway. Kind of moving on here, and um, the second benefit is he heals us. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. 
And this is also a quote later on that Jesus will quote in, in the Gospels. Because this was a prophecy in Isaiah about Jesus himself. So brokenheartedness over sin always precedes repentance. And in his mercy, he renews us and makes us whole. He takes out our heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. He makes us new. He makes us whole in him. He takes away the infirmities in our own life and the infirmities of our sin and the infirmities of our flesh that desire the things of the world. We desire the sin. We desire the lustful things that your flesh desires. Like, I don't know, like in Israel or in Egypt or in the wilderness, Israel wanted the good food that Egypt had. That was a lustful desire. And the passage says that this strong lust overcame them and they started complaining about, well, we don't have this good food. We have this worthless bread from heaven, which was, again, Jesus. And so they're complaining against God's deliverance, not only then and there, but also foreshadowing the future of Christ. So broken hardness over sin um, receives repentance, and in his mercy he does, he heals us. He heals our hearts, and he gives us a heart that's Desires his things, desires his will, wants what he wants, and loves God. <clears throat> and he redeems. Psalms 49.15 says, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Because of Christ, those who trust in him will be... Sorry, this is not part of Psalms, this is what I wrote down. Because of Christ, those who trust in him will be spared from death and enter into paradise. So this is the third benefit I have written down, and it is that all these all kind of coincide. But all of this is to keep us from seeing the decay of the grave. Our bodies will go into the grave, our spirits will go to God, and He will give us new bodies, and we will live forever with Him. So anyway. Each of these I just mentioned, they, they, they have really a full sermon dedicated to them. And anybody who's studied scripture at all knows that I mean, each one could go on for probably these sermons for each one, but um, I don't know that much about them, <laughs> so I can't speak on them for weeks and weeks. Um, so I wanted to focus in on one, though. Um, this is the one that got to kind of press upon my heart. And I, I have a tendency to want to be the fire brimstone teacher. I don't know if it's delusions of grandeur or whatever, but uh, uh, God always checks me and he says, you know, this is it's important that we talk about this aspect, and that's his loving kindness. And I believe that uh, without knowing the depth of our sin and what it means, we miss the richness of his love a lot of the time. But also, if that's all we talk about, then we lose hope. We can certainly drive some of this hope waiting for them, and that's not what I'm here to do. So I want to do it. I want to give you hope the way I know how, the way I see it in Scripture. Um, so loving kindness, Hebrew word is hesed. Um, it means love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, and devotion. And these are all God's attributes. These are not ours. We don't. We have dim reflections of this in our daily lives, and and, uh, and just human nature has some some. I think it's the common grace of God that we have any of this at all. These are attributes of God. God knows what love is. He is love. He's the one who invented it. And outside of him, we really can't know it. Um, so, um, sorry. Romans 2, 4. Um, Paul just gets done rebuking people for 
judging other people, lording their good deeds over other people, and being hypocrites in that. And he says in Romans 2 4, after he gets done with all oh, let me go and go to the verse, actual verse in my Bible here because I only have partial, partially written down on my paper. Sorry. It's always better to just read more of the context than less. <laughs> it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are to judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, but we know the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think, this O man, that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And here's the key verse that I have written down, it is, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So when we lord in our own accomplishments over others, and when we judge others eternity by a scale we've made, and by weights that we put on the scale, we're abhorring the goodness of God, because if we have truly come to repentance, it is only because of the goodness of God that we've come to repentance. So that's what he's trying to get across. And I thought of another story that Jesus taught on that I think is a perfect example of this goodness of God. And that is the story of the prodigal son, one we're probably all very familiar with. Jesus had a way of shocking his audience when he spoke to them, a way of getting under their skin if they were kind of opposed to him. Well, he's talking to Pharisees and, and teachers of the law. He did that a lot. And it wasn't malicious. He wanted them to come to repentance. But he had to kick their sacred cows, so to speak, I guess. Get them to listen. Get them to understand what he was saying. And so he starts off on this story of the prodigal son. And the son comes to his father. And he asks his father for his inheritance, which was an insult to his father. Basically saying, I wish you were dead, and I wish I had my inheritance, and I wish I was out here. And in the Pharisee's mind, what the father should have done is, well, he should have given the son the back of his hand. Petulant, he's foolish, he's insolent, he's just completely disrespectful. Shouldn't have allowed that to happen. Shouldn't have had that happen, and his father should have slapped him. That was the mindset of the Pharisees. And so this is where it gets more scandalous as you go, because the father, of course, doesn't. He gives him his inheritance, and he lets him squander. And now the father's the foolish one in the mind of the Pharisees. Fathers allowed his son to dishonor him, to be prideful, given him his inheritance, and then his son, worse, goes and squanders it. And of course, his son is feeding the pigs. I fed pigs before, so if you ever get to this point, there is something wrong. Pig slop stinks, and if you think that that looks good to you and you want to eat it, then you've messed up severely somewhere along the way. And so, so he he um, he comes to his senses, and that's what the Bible says. He comes to his senses, and he says, "I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to beg him for his forgiveness. I'm going to ask him to be made, I'll be with, put with his slaves and be one of his slaves." And even scriptures, are, I like this verse. It says, "It's better to be the doorkeeper." the kingdom of God to spend a thousand days on this earth. So anyway, that's, that's kind of an indicator of where he's at here. 
And so he comes running back, and the thought of the Pharisees is this part in the story is, okay, now the father should give him what he deserves and should disown him. Take back his inheritance and make him be a slave. Put him exactly where he has to be. But that's not what he does. And we know what he does. He does something even more indignant. He hikes up his robe, which is a sign of <laughs> just complete recklessness and and he runs to this prodigal son, and then he, and he embraces him before the son even has a chance to say, "Forgive me." And I I would venture to even say this: that he probably carries him back. I'm sure the son is tired, weary, hungry, and that's not what the scriptures say. That's my only hypothesis. I bet he carries him back to the house, and they throw a, a feast for him. They kill the fatted calf. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. And in his loving kindness, he sustains us by his power. Through all their wandering in the wilderness, the multitudes of Israel did not lack food. The sandals on their feet never wore out. It is by the strength of his love that we come out of sin. And by the same strength and providence, we live as aliens and strangers in this world and pass from this life onto the next, into his rest. And that's all I have for you, so let's bow our heads and pray one more time. And it's short and sweet, so we can get out of here and maybe go to McDonald's. <laughs> all right, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it is that you've done for us, Lord. We pray that we wouldn't forget. It's important that we remember our first love. It's, report, it's important that we remember the lover of our souls, the one who died for us, Lord. We thank you for that so much. We praise you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.